we'll be looking at a less somber subject. So if you have a Bible, you can open them to Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 31. This morning, we're going to be looking at one of Jesus' parables. And in case you're not very familiar with the parables, these are simple stories that Jesus told to illustrate spiritual truths. And they were an incredibly common teaching technique of Jesus. If you were to read through the Synoptic Gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you would encounter a lot of different parables, many of them unique to each of those books. But there are only a few parables that show up in all of the Synoptic Gospels, and our text today is one of them. Now, just a little bit of context before we read. These two parables come in a string of parables in Matthew 13 that are all about the kingdom of God, or to use Matthew's preferred phrase, the kingdom of heaven. And there's been a lot of ink spilled over what the kingdom of God is, so let me just go ahead and give you my basic definition. The kingdom of God is God's saving reign, which is being realized on earth. God's saving reign realized on earth. This is This is what we pray for every week when we pray the Lord's Prayer and say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I I give you that definition because in all of the parables in Matthew 13, Jesus doesn't exactly define what the kingdom of God is for us. Rather, he describes what the kingdom of God is like. So with that, let's turn our attention now to God's word Again, this is Matthew 13, starting in verse 31. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you speak to us in your word. But as we come to your word this morning, we recognize that we need your help in order to understand it. Apart from your, your spirit, these words will fall on deaf ears. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come this morning and give us ears to hear. Would you give us eyes to see Jesus, and would you give us hearts that understand what you have for us? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I know that as a church, you all have interacted with several RUF campus ministers over the years, whether they have attended church here or just come and visited to preach. So let let me let you in on a little secret about RUF campus ministers. Do you know what question we all hate to be asked? It's, so how many people come to your RUF? Now, I know that whenever someone asks that, it's not ill-intentioned. They are usually genuinely interested in our ministry, and they just want to get a sense of what it's like on our campus. But that question stirs up all of our personal insecurities, 
Because no matter how big or small our ministry is, there is always still some other ministry on campus that has more students coming to its meetings or is reporting more conversions happening in their ministry. And the reason that we're insecure about that is because even as pastors, we have bought into this idea that success looks like something that is big and dramatic and measurable. If we are doing effective ministry on campus, we should be able to rattle off some stats that show that we're getting results, right? Well, it's not surprising that we would think this way because we've really been conditioned to think this way, especially as Americans. We live in a society that loves metrics. We are a data-driven culture. Think about it. We assign rankings to college football teams even before the season starts based on how many four- and five-star recruits they got because we believe that those numbers can help us to predict their success in the coming season. Or in election years, the media is always reporting polling numbers and dollars raised, believing that that will give us an indication of who will win the election. Most of my students at MTSU feel a lot of pressure to have a good GPA because they believe that that number will determine their success in life. But even after we leave college and realize that your GPA actually doesn't matter, We just adopt new metrics for ourselves, don't we? Whether that's our figures at work, or our income, or our weight, or the number of activities our kids are in. We love to be able to point to something that is visible and measurable to say that we are significant and successful. So it's not surprising that we bring that same mindset to Christianity. If Christianity is true and God is sovereignly bringing his saving reign upon the earth, then shouldn't it be happening in a way that is big and observable and measurable? Well, Jesus originally spoke these parables to a group of people who thought the same way. In verse 31, it says that Jesus put another parable before them. And if we were to go back and read that verse in the the context of the rest of Matthew 13, we would see that Jesus is not speaking these parables to the crowds. No, he's just speaking them to his disciples. These are people who have heard Jesus preach. They have seen him perform miracles. They have believed that he is the Messiah, their long-awaited Savior. And so they are very eager for him to usher in his kingdom in dramatic fashion. But Jesus tells these parables to communicate that that's not the way the kingdom of God works. That is not what the kingdom of God is like. No, the kingdom of God comes to us in a way that we don't expect. So how does the kingdom of God come? Well, as we look at these two parables this morning, we're going to see three things. The kingdom of God has insignificant origins, inconspicuous growth, but incredible results. So first, the kingdom of God has insignificant origins. In the first of these two parables, Jesus compares the kingdom of God to a grain of mustard seed that a man sowed in the field. And to make his point of comparison clear, he then adds that it is the smallest of all the seeds. Now, this isn't literally true. The mustard seed isn't the smallest seed that exists. We have to give Jesus a little bit of poetic license here. 
But he chooses the mustard seed because it was the smallest seed that farmers during this time commonly planted in their gardens. And consequently, the mustard seed had become proverbial for its smallness in Jewish thought. And if you've ever eaten whole grain mustard before, then you'll have a general idea of the size of a mustard seed. If you were to press your thumb into a pile of them, maybe 40 to 50 of them would stick just to the tip of your thumb. But from this tiny seed, from this thing that seems so small and insignificant, Jesus says that the kingdom of God grows. And he reinforces this idea with a second parable. If there were any women listening who may not have been as familiar with farming, they would have been familiar with baking. Because back then, you couldn't go to Kroger or Publix to buy a loaf of bread. Everyone made their own bread at home, sort of like quarantine last year. (laughs) And so Jesus compares the kingdom of God to leaven in bread. Now, you couldn't buy packets of fast-acting yeast at the grocery store during this time. And so the way that you would leaven bread is you would take an old piece of dough and you would work it into the new dough in order to make it rise. And to draw out the, the seeming insignificance of this little piece of leaven, Jesus says that the woman put it into three measures of flour. Now you might be thinking, how much is that? Three measures sort of seems like a, a vague unit of measurement. Is that like three cups of flour? Well, actually, this would have been 50 to 60 pounds of flour. And this little piece of leaven would have seemed like nothing in comparison to so much dough. But Jesus says, from a little bit of leaven, the kingdom of God spreads. It comes from seemingly insignificant origins. Now, on the one hand, this may surprise us because, again, we have been conditioned to expect great things to come in big packages. But on the other hand, this really shouldn't surprise us because this is the way the kingdom of God has always come. When Jesus first showed up on the scene and began preaching that the kingdom of God had come, he said, the kingdom of God has drawn near. It is at hand. And why did he say that? Because the king had come. He was the king who was bringing in his kingdom. And this king also had insignificant origins. This king was not born in a palace. He was born in a feeding trough for animals. And when people heard where he was from, they said things like, what good can come out of Nazareth? And even people in his own hometown rejected him because he was just the son of the local contractor. And the religious leaders at the time rejected him in part because he didn't have the right credentials. But this apparent nobody was in fact the king who is bringing God's kingdom to earth. Jesus himself shows us that God's kingdom has always come from seemingly insignificant origins. And that is the way it continues to come now. Which means that the small things matter. Our small, ordinary acts of faithfulness may seem insignificant to us, But they are the mustard seeds from which the kingdom of God grows. They are the leaven from which the kingdom of God spreads. So parents, let me talk to you for a moment. The small things that you do with your kids really do matter. 
reading the Bible with your kids or, or praying with them and for them may seem really ordinary and even insignificant, and consequently, it can be easy for us to let them fall by the wayside. But these are the seeds from which the kingdom of God grows in our kids' lives. The same is true for the small ways that we try to live out of our faith. As parents, we all realize pretty quickly that our kids are watching absolutely everything that we do. They pick up on all of the little behaviors that we may not even be aware of ourselves. And what that means is that they notice your small acts of obedience to God, and they learn how to follow God from watching you. Another small way that we can live out our faith before them is by asking for their forgiveness. A few months ago, there was a New York Times article called How to Apologize to a Child, and it featured a Covenant Seminary professor of counseling who did his doctoral research on that very subject. And in this article, the professor said that he would often poll his classes and ask them how often they had heard an apology from their parents when they were growing up. And sadly, he said that the, the answers typically skewed to once or maybe even never. Well, how can we get our kids to take seriously a faith that is based on the forgiveness of sins if they never see us ask for forgiveness? On the other hand, when we do the small and humble work of apologizing to our children, we are preparing their hearts to humble themselves before God. Now, even if you're not a parent here this morning, your small, ordinary acts of faithfulness are still the leaven from which the kingdom of God spreads in the world. We might be tempted to think that in order for cultural renewal to happen, we need to get the right politicians in place or right, have the right public programs. But this parable tells us that it's actually going to happen on a much smaller scale. It happens when we volunteer our time to someone who is in need, or when we share what we have with someone who has less resources, or when we simply seek to be salt and light in our workplaces. Or we might be tempted to believe that in order for people to come to faith, our churches need to be really culturally relevant, they need to have good programmings and great music and a charismatic preacher. But this parable tells us that people are going to come to faith through simple things like getting to know our neighbors who aren't Christians, praying for them, and trying to talk to them about God. As the prophet Zechariah says, don't despise the day of small things because the kingdom of God has insignificant origins. But it also has inconspicuous growth, which is our second point this morning. So if we slow down and reflect on these two metaphors that Jesus uses, we'll see that the way the kingdom of God grows is slow and often invisible to the eye. Think about planting seeds. If you've ever done any gardening, you know that you can't expect a seed to become a full-grown plant overnight. We want it to, and that's why many of us will buy the full-grown uh, basil plants from the grocery store rather than starting from seed. <laughs> because seeds grow slowly. When you first plant the seed, it is hidden beneath the surface of the soil, and for a while, it seems like nothing is happening. You go out and water it every day, and you watch, hoping that maybe something will sprout from the ground. 
And when it finally does, that's an exciting day, and you want to show everyone that you're a real gardener. But even then, the growth happens very slowly. A seed can take days or weeks or even months for it to reach maturity. And if you were to go out every day and try to see how much it had grown from the day before, you would probably conclude that nothing is happening. From day to day, its growth is so gradual as to almost be imperceptible. And that's the way the kingdom of God grows. We see a similar message with Jesus' second comparison of the kingdom to leaven in dough. Now remember that Jesus is talking about 50 to 60 pounds of flour. And so there is a reason that he says that the woman took the leaven and hid it in the dough. Because it would have become completely enveloped by the dough. It would have disappeared. And it would have been really hard to tell if it was having any effect. And then just think about how long it would take to knead a little bit of leaven throughout that much dough. If you've ever hand-kneaded dough before, you'll know that it can be very laborious. There's lots of pressing and turning and folding. And nowadays, if a bakery were to do a big batch of dough like this, they have all of these, uh, these big kneading and mixing machines that really do a lot of the work for you. But this poor woman in the parable wouldn't have had one of those. No, she would have been at her kitchen table kneading all day long, slowly spreading that leaven throughout the dough. And that is how the kingdom of God grows. It's inconspicuous. It can be so hidden and so slow that it often looks like nothing is happening. And that's why we have a saying in RUF that if someone asks you how the ministry is going, you should respond, I'll tell you in 20 years. And we say that, one, because we recognize that impact is best measured in the long term. It's not only about the change that we see in a person's life in the four years of college. It's, it's about what kind of parents and spouses and friends and workers and church members they become. But we also say that, secondly, to remind ourselves as campus ministers of this reality, that the kingdom of God often grows inconspicuously. To my eyes, it may look like my ministry to a student is having little to no effect on their life. In fact, it may look like the student is actually going the opposite direction. I chase after them more and more. I repeatedly invite them to Bible studies and to large groups, and they come more and more sporadically, and they make more and more baffling decisions. But just because I can't see what God is doing in a student's life doesn't mean that God isn't doing anything. And if you're a younger or a newer Christian here this morning, I want you to keep that in mind. Hopefully, you have experienced something of the exciting nature of the Christian life. Right? The king of the universe loves you and died for you, and now you can come to him for whatever you need. That is pretty exciting. But as you get a little farther down the path, you're going to experience some times of frustration. There are going to be times when it seems like God is not answering your prayers, There are going to be times when other people don't share the same enthusiasm about Jesus as you do. There are going to be times when you're even frustrated with the church because it just seems like everybody here is a bunch of sinners. 
Well, during those times, please don't assume that just because you can't see God working means that he's not. Jesus promises us that God is always working to bring about his kingdom. Sometimes we just can't see that. And do you know what the greatest demonstration of that was? It was the cross of Christ. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, what God was doing was hidden from all of his disciples. Remember, these these are people who had believed that Jesus was their Messiah. But in that moment, when Jesus was nailed to the cross, all they saw was their hopes being buried in the ground. All they saw were their dreams being swallowed up by the Roman Empire. What they couldn't see is that that moment was the most significant moment in the coming of God's kingdom. Because it was in that moment that Jesus opened the way for sinners like us to come into his kingdom. Yes, the the cross of Christ helps us to trust that God is always working even when we can't see it. And for those of you here this morning who have been following Jesus for a while, haven't you found that principle to be true? Haven't you seen the slow and often secretive ways that God works over the long term? And yet, we can so easily forget that this is the way the kingdom of God grows. We get caught up in our world where you can track the shipment of your one-day deliveries, and we start thinking, you know, the kingdom of God should really work a little bit more like Amazon. (laughs) And this is why we need to continually go back to God's word to have our expectations recalibrated. Because it's not just this parable that tells us that God works slowly. It's really the whole arc of the biblical story. When humanity fell into sin in Genesis 3, God didn't fix it immediately. No, he spent thousands of years preparing the way of salvation in the Old Testament. And then at the end of Old Testament history, there were 400 years of silence in which people wondered if and when God was going to act. And then when Jesus finally did show up on the scene and announced that he was bringing God's saving reign to earth, he reminds us that change is going to continue to be slow and steady. You see, the Lord is always playing the long game. And so we, as we join in the work of his kingdom through our small and ordinary acts of faithfulness, we need to remember that we are also playing the long game. We are playing the long game as we seek to raise our kids up in the Lord. We are playing the long game as we seek to share the love of Christ with our neighbors. We are playing the long game as we labor for his kingdom in our communities. But we can be patient in the long game because Jesus assures us that our labor is never in vain. God is always using it to bring about his kingdom even when we can't see it. So the kingdom of God has insignificant origins inconspicuous growth, but by God's power, it produces incredible results. That's our final point this morning. So first, let's briefly return to the second of these parables. What happens to that little piece of leaven? Jesus says that it leavens all 60 pounds of flour. And that amount of dough would have made enough bread to feed well over 100 people. 
So a little bit of leaven would have resulted in this woman's entire village being fed. Now let's go back to the first parable. What happens to that tiny, insignificant mustard seed? Well, Jesus says that it grows up to be larger than any other plant in the garden. And the kind of mustard plants that grew in this part of the world could be up to 10 or even 12 feet high. And so this little seed, of which 50 could fit on my thumb, grows up to be a tree that is twice my height. And then Jesus adds that the birds of the air come and make their nest in its branches. And that might seem like a weird detail to add to us, but we should remember that Jesus uses no extraneous words. So what's he doing here? What's the point of this extra description? Is he using a little bit of literary irony, like the birds that might have eaten these seeds are now coming to nest in its branches? Well, Jesus is doing something a little more theological. As he is wont to do, Jesus is subtly drawing from the Old Testament. And this is actually an allusion to the Old Testament reading that we did this morning, Ezekiel 17. When we read that passage, you may have thought, huh, that's sort of a random passage to read. I wonder what that's about. Well, this is why we read it. Because in Ezekiel, the prophet uses the imagery of birds nesting in the branches of a tree to represent all the nations of the earth coming in to the kingdom of the Messiah. And so when Jesus draws on this imagery, what he's saying is that even though the kingdom of God has insignificant origins and inconspicuous growth, it will spread throughout the entire world. And it shouldn't be lost on us that we are evidence of that claim. Here we are this morning, a bunch of people, mostly of Western European descent, worshiping a Middle Eastern man who lived 2,000 years ago. And if you're here this morning and you're not entirely sure what you think about Christianity, I want you to sincerely ponder that fact. Why are you here this morning? Sure, maybe a friend invited you or your family brought to you, but dig a little deeper than that. Why are you sitting here in this random building off exit 8 of I-24 with all of these other people listening to me talk about this guy who lived thousands of years ago. If Jesus was just a great religious teacher who had some helpful things to say about how we could live a good life and feel better about ourselves, then you wouldn't be sitting here this morning. No, his life and his teaching would be just another drop in the ocean of history. I would contend that the fact that you are sitting here this morning is only a result of the incredible power of the gospel, which, as the Apostle Paul says, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And he means everyone. The kingdom that Jesus ushered in 2,000 years ago has grown to include people of every ethnicity and every culture. It has spread to permeate every educational class and every socioeconomic class. It has transformed lives and communities and entire civilizations across the history and across the globe. We are here this morning because Jesus brought his saving reign to earth and it has been spreading in the world all around us. And Jesus can bring it into your life as well. Maybe you're here this morning because the seed has already been planted. 
And maybe today is the day that it finally sprouts. Now, if you are a Christian here this morning, I just hope this is encouraging to you. We may feel like Christianity is waning in influence. When we look at the world around us, it may increasingly feel like our faith in Jesus puts us in the minority. We hear reports of people leaving the church, churches in droves, and that can discourage us into thinking that being a Christian is just fighting a losing battle. Can our small, ordinary acts of faithfulness really do anything to stop the bleeding? Well, just remember that over the last 2,000 years, Christianity grew from a group of 12 guys to the world's largest religion, which now encompasses almost one-third of the global population. I know I rebuffed our reliance on stats earlier, but here are some numbers for you. A study on global missions done by Gordon-Conwell Seminary found that over the last 200 years, just as philosophers were saying that God is dead and scientists were predicting that religion would become obsolete, during that same time period, Christianity grew from making up 22.7% of the global population to 32.4% of the global population. And all predictions say that that percentage is only going to continue to increase over the next few decades. Here's another one for you. A recent study done by the Pew Research Center found that Americans who were raised in non-religious homes were twice as likely to become religious than Protestant Christians were to become non-religious. Now, we don't rely on statistics like these, but they can bolster our confidence in Jesus' words that God is using our small, ordinary acts of faithfulness to advance his kingdom on earth. We may not be able to see that now, but one day we will. One day we will see the tree fully grown. One day we will see the dough fully leavened. One day Jesus will return And we will proclaim with all the heavenly hosts that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Amen. I recently read a story of a man for whom that will be true. In 1912, there was a Canadian missionary named Dr. William Leslie who went into the remote jungles of what is now the Democratic Republic of Congo. And for 17 years, he labored amongst the tribes there with no apparent success. And he finally returned back to Canada after he was driven out by the tribal leaders. And he died there in Canada nine years later in 1938, believing that all of his efforts had resulted in nothing but failure. But then in 2010, a team of missionaries returned to these same jungles to minister to what they believed were unreached people groups. And what they found there astounded them. There were eight villages that had thriving churches. And each of those churches had their own choirs that wrote their own gospel songs because they didn't have any hymn books. One of the villages had a stone church that could seat up to a thousand people. But at some point, the congregation for that church had become too large for the building, so they began a church-planting movement in all the villages around them. 
And when the missionaries inquired about these churches' origins, the tribal people referenced this guy named Leslie, but they really couldn't remember much about him. They didn't even know if that was his first name or his last name. And so with a little more research, the missionaries learned about Dr. William Leslie, the man who had lived and labored amongst those tribes all those years before. One man labored for 17 years with no visible fruit. And almost 100 years later, formerly cannibalistic tribes had been transformed into reproducing communities of faith. That's insignificant origins, inconspicuous growth, but incredible results. That is how the kingdom of God comes. That is what the kingdom of God is like. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we confess that our expectations for your work are often conditioned more by the world around us than they are your word. And we become impatient for you to work. We want to see you do dramatic things in a really measurable fashion. And so we thank you that you confront those expectations with these parables. You tell us that your kingdom comes from small things and it grows slowly and secretively. But Lord, that shouldn't discourage us because you also tell us that it has incredible results. One day, the knowledge of the glory of God shall, shall fill this world just as the waters fill the earth. We thank you for that, Lord. We pray that you would give us the faith to wait upon that reality. And would you help us to persevere in laboring for your kingdom in small and ordinary ways until your son Jesus comes again. We pray these things in his name. Amen.